um, John 7, 1 through 13. After Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may seek, see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, Many times, my, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that it works, its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. After saying, these, saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, is he, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke up openly f of him. Thanks, Brittany. All right. Well, let's ask the Lord to teach us this morning through his word. Would you, would you pray with me once again? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for um, just each and every person that you've brought here um, to be gathered um, with your church today. God, you see us. You know us. You know all the things going on in our mind, all the things going on in our lives, and yet you've called us to be here right now this morning. Um, and so, God, we ask that you would open our ears that we might hear from you, that you would open our eyes that we might see you today. Would you be our teacher today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a, have a friend that I, that I met uh, several months ago. Um, some of you may remember um, I got the chance to take a trip down to, to El Paso with a few other pastors in our um, denomination. And one of the guys that I met, uh, he's currently a pastor in Desert Hot Springs. I don't know if anybody's ever frequented Desert Hot Springs, uh, but that's where he is. Uh, his name is Alberto. He is an awesome guy. I got to know this guy a little bit. He is from Argentina and uh, has been pastoring for a long time in all different parts of the world. So he's, he's uh, pastored churches in Argentina, in Paraguay, in Denmark. And while he was in Denmark, he was doing some music pastoral stuff with um, refugees that were from different countries in the Middle East. Um, and so he was doing a lot of work with, with Muslims, and, and, and he's now in desert hot springs of all places. Um, and so as I'm getting to know this guy, I'm meeting him, I'm like, this guy is an interesting dude. Like, I am curious to know the, like, what this, what this man has learned across the world in all of these totally different contexts. And so sitting down with him um, one night at dinner, and he goes, you know, there's two things that are universal among human beings wherever you go. I was like, I can't wait to hear this. This is going to be great. Like, this man has traveled all over the place. He's lived places. He's pastored people. Like, I can't wait to hear this. I, I want to glean this wisdom. And he goes, there's two things everybody universally agrees upon. One is this, food. I was like, all right, yeah, okay, I can see that. Everybody loves food. Everybody eats. Yeah, absolutely. Is the second one is complaining about your in-laws. <laughs> I was like, wow, really? He's like, yes, no matter where I go, everyone has that in common. And I thought that was hilarious. Now, I've been blessed with great in-laws, so I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Um, 
<laughs> but it, uh, I, I thought that was so funny. And it was just this like moment of like, yes, everyone across the world, no matter what culture or context you're from, knows that family can be hard. Family relationships, family dynamics can just be difficult. Even the best of families, there's tension, there's hurt, right? But the, people, the people that we are closest to in our lives have the, have the greatest capacity to hurt us, right? And so it doesn't matter how great your family is, how much you love each other, eventually you hurt each other. Eventually there's tension, eventually there's hardship, and it's difficult. Some of you know what it's like to have a really hard family relationship. Some of you know that really deeply. Some of you know what it feels like to be rejected by family members. Maybe that's for certain choices that you've made or maybe the, the, even, even the faith that you've, you've chosen to have, you just, you just feel rejection from certain family members. Maybe some of you know that feeling of, of judgment from family members as they look at your life and they don't agree with your choices, they don't agree with your values. Maybe, you, maybe some of you know what it's like to just feel like a stranger in your own family. Like, I don't quite, I don't quite fit in here. Everybody thinks differently, everybody votes differently, everybody just is different than me. I, I just don't feel like I belong here. There's a lot of distance. Some of you know just the sadness of having broken family relationships. As we come to John 7, we see that Jesus is no stranger to painful family relationships. Jesus, the Savior of the world, experienced broken family relationships. We see it really clearly this morning in this, in this story. His very own brothers reject him. And in the passage today, we're going to see that his brothers, they kind of come to him and they poke him and they prod him and they tease him and they push him and they tempt him. And ultimately, they reject him in this story today. And we're going to see Jesus' response to them. And I believe it can not only bring comfort to those of us that have experienced the same thing, but it also reveals to us Jesus' commitment to save us. So look with me in John chapter 7. We see at the very beginning here, uh, we're going to need a little bit of cultural context because I don't know about you, but I don't celebrate a feast of booths. So we probably need to talk a little bit about, about what that is. Um, so here's what it says, uh, John chapter 7, uh, after this, so th- we're about probably about six months passed from uh, where we just ended in John chapter 6, right? Where Jesus feeds, miraculously feeds somewhere between five to probably 20,000 people uh, with a few loaves of fish and a few uh, uh, fit or loaves of fish, a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Um, gross, right? Uh, and, and he just finishes off of that. And then he uh, launches into this teaching that is just not popular, right? He's talking about uh, how if you want to enter the kingdom, you, ha- you have to eat my flesh and, and drink my blood and all these people leave him and stop following him because of what he's saying. And, and his own disciples confess, like, Jesus, we're not going anywhere. You have the words of life. So we just finished off of this just, really just amazing chapter. And it's been about six months now. And it picks up and it tells us that Jesus is in Galilee and he refuses to go about in the region of Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. So from the end of chapter 6 to now where we are in chapter 7, there, a lot of hostility has continued to build against Jesus. To now the Jewish leaders want to not just reject him, but kill him. And so Jesus holds back from going to certain places because of that. And it tells us in verse 2, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, there's three great feasts in Jewish culture. All of them have been instituted in the Old Testament by God himself for his people. We've got to know a few of what they are if we're going to understand what's really happening here. Because the next couple chapters are going to be taking place during this feast. Okay? So there's three great Jewish feasts. The first one you might be familiar with is Passover. Okay? Passover is the, is the remembrance of the, of the people of Israel of when God led them out of slavery from Egypt in, into freedom, really. Even though they went into the wilderness, he would eventually lead them to the promised land. 
And the Passover is a, is a, a feast that celebrates that God saved them out of Egypt from slavery and primarily through the blood of a lamb. Right? If you're familiar with this, we, we, talk, we kind of talk about this often, right? Um, that the, in, the, in that exodus out of Egypt, God uh, was going to pass over Egypt and he was going to kill all the firstborn, child, firstborn sons uh, in Egypt unless his people, he instructed them, get, get a lamb, kill it, put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, and when, when I pass over and I see the blood of the lamb, my wrath will pass over you. Okay, that's that idea of Passover. And so every year, God instituted this for his people to remember this. Remember that it was through the blood of the lamb that I provided for you that my wrath passed over you and you were saved. Okay? That's the, that's the feast of, of Passover, Passover. The second one is this. It's called the Feast of Weeks. You, we might know it more familiarly, familiarly if in Acts chapter 2, it's, it's called Pentecost. Okay, the Feast of Weeks is this. Uh, it's in summer. It's about seven weeks after Passover. And it's when all the people of Israel come to Jerusalem to offer the first fruits of the harvest. Right? The harvest is just starting to happen, the harvest of wheat. Um, and they bring their first fruits of that harvest to offer up to the Lord. To say, the Lord, this, this harvest belongs to you. You're the one that's giving this to us. Now imagine, we, we, we don't live in this kind of culture, but this is a, a very agricultural society right? There's not, not everyone just has like a hose in their backyard where they can just water all their crops or a, a sweet sprinkler system. No, they're very dependent on it actually raining, right? On God actually, you know, providing the sunshine and the, and the atmosphere to grow crops. And so when the harvest comes, they, they take the first fruits of the harvest and bring them to the Lord to say, this is you. This, this comes from you. It doesn't come from us. But the third one is this one, the Feast of Booths. And this was at the end of the harvest season. So it was when everything was, was kind of now over. We've brought in all of the harvest. We now get to partake of it and enjoy it and celebrate together. And so at this time, all of the people would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, to celebrate the end of the harvest. And the, the way that they would do it is by all building tents or booths or tabernacles or whatever you want to call it. They, they would build tents and they would live in those tents for the whole feast. It was about a week. And it was meant to, to celebrate and remember that after God brought them out of Israel, uh, 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 sorry, out of Egypt into the wilderness, he provided for them, he gave them food, he gave them water, and they all dwelled in tents, and God dwelled with them, among them, in a tent that they built. And God's very presence would come down and it would dwell with them and be with them. And so this Feast of Booths was remembering, hey, the harvest we just had came from the Lord, and we remember the time when we dwelled in the wilderness. He provided for us, and his presence was with us in a tent. And we all dwelled in tents. And so for a week, they come together. They literally move out of their houses. They build tents, and they live in it. It's just like a national campout, right? <laughs> Sounds like the worst holiday ever to me, to be honest. I don't really like camping. I don't think camping's all that comfortable. The views are nice, but I prefer homes. Uh, I prefer houses and hotels and buildings and whatnot, all right? Okay. Um, anyways, I was going to make jokes about camp, but we'll move on. Um, okay, so anyway, so that's the, that's the Feast of Booths. So that's, that's where we are when we, when we come here. Now, it, during this feast, there's several like really vivid illustrations that happen that we're actually going to see in the next couple chapters. One of which is this ceremony of pouring water out from the temple, which was meant to, to remember that, hey, when we were in the wilderness, God miraculously provided water for us. Right? There's also a festival of lights that they're going to do. We're going to see both of these come up in the next two chapters. In fact, remember what Jesus says on the light of the world? Right? That's coming up when, during this feast when they're celebrating this, this different festival of lights that they do. Okay, we'll get there eventually. 
So this is, this is where we are. Now, God set up all of these feasts for his people on purpose. This is not just some kind of like religious activity to keep them busy. No, the, the purpose that, that God set this up for his people, for his people in the Old Testament, was because he knew humanity's propensity to forget, right? Humanity's propensity to forget that they need God, to forget what God's done for them, and to start to believe, hey, we're pretty self-sufficient. Hey, look at this harvest that we started. And we get to bring, look at all these crops we grew and, and sustained for ourselves. And, and look at all the shelter we have. These feasts were scheduled so that God's people would intentionally remember who God is and what he's done for them. So this is where we are. Now we tend to think about the feast of Passover as probably the greatest feast because in our minds we see the clear connection between the Passover story and, the, and Jesus on the cross paying for our sins, being the lamb that was slain for us and his blood saves us from the wrath of God. We see that connection so clearly. But for the Jews, this feast right here, the Feast of, of Booths, was the greatest. It was a celebration. It was a party. This was a fun feast. There's no bitter herbs to like remember the sadness of suffering. There's like, this is, hey, we got the harvest. Let's party. By sleeping in tents. I don't get that part. But anyways, <laughs> right? So this is, this is a party. And this is where we find uh, uh, John chapter 7. So this feast is happening. Everyone's making their way to Jerusalem and Jesus' brothers come to Jesus. And here's what they say. Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. So go do these things and show yourself to the world. And then it tells us not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I don't know how you read this, but this is... This is a challenge from Jesus' brothers. This is them kind of mocking him. Hey, rabbi man who's kind of growing in popularity and doing all these cool miracles and people are starting to follow you. If you're so great and you want to be known and you want to be so, such a great teacher, well, then, then go to this feast. Go to the biggest feast. Go to the party. Go where everybody's going and go do some of those miracles you do. Tell everybody about yourself so you can, you can get real popular and get real famous and everybody can know who you are. And they're mocking Jesus. And John, the author, tells us why. It's because they don't believe in him. They reject him. Jesus' own brothers don't believe that he's the Savior. They don't believe that he's God. They don't believe he's the promised Messiah. They don't believe he's the King. His own brothers. Isn't that kind of astonishing? We, we actually know that later they do believe. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' brothers are among the first believers to believe in Jesus after his resurrection. But at this point in the story, they don't. Like, miracle boy over here. This, this, this guy, is, we don't like this guy. He's, he's, he's kind of crazy. They, they reject him. Now, ultimately, we would know the beauty of the story, James, the brother of Jesus, would go on to write the book of James. Right? He was probably considered to be the, the leader of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. Or Jude, if you're familiar with the book of Jude, is also one of Jesus' brothers. Okay, so we know this isn't the end of the story, but where we find ourselves here, they're mocking Jesus, they're teasing him, they're tempting him, and they're rejecting him. And yet they've grown up every day with Jesus and they don't believe. I find that amazing. Some of you have family members that don't believe, and you know what that feels like. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and there's someone in your, in your family that's close to you that you love that's not. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a sibling. 
Maybe it's a parent. And some of you, I know, feel shame about that. Shame about that child or that family member that doesn't believe in Jesus like you do. And maybe you feel this sense within you of, man, I should have done more. What if I had changed that? What if I had done this? Or I hadn't said that. I ruined it. Like, ah, I, I could be doing more. We start to feel like the reason they don't believe is my fault. Or I know some of you that are parents here, you, you worry, you stress, what's going to happen to my kids? Are they going to believe? Are they going to follow Jesus? Are they going to trust in him? And the temptation is to think, oh, I, I got to make sure. And I, I, I have to guarantee, like, it's got to happen. I, I got to do everything that I, I got to control it. And if you find yourself in a place like that, I want you to be encouraged by this story. Just this little snippet right here. Jesus, Jesus' family didn't believe in him. The, the, the God that created everything we see and know and everything we don't see and don't know with his word, his family didn't believe in him. Listen to, this is a a preacher from the 1800s. He said this about this very story, about Jesus' brothers. He said, seeing Jesus' miracles, hearing Jesus' teaching, living in Jesus' own company were not enough to make men believers. The mere possession of spiritual privilege never made anyone a Christian. Simply being around Jesus, hearing him teach, seeing miracles, that doesn't make someone a Christian. This is where we're comforted with what Aaron taught us last week about the beauty of God's election. That those whom God has chosen and called will come to trust in him and follow him, regardless of how much influence we feel like we have or don't have. Jesus' family not believing was not a failure on Jesus. There's lots of people that rejected Jesus. Seemingly more than, than, than actually believed. Remember, Jesus ended with a net loss with his disciples. He started with 12 and he ended with 11. That's not because Jesus failed. That's because the plan of God is mysteriously working. And in this story right here, we see the beauty of God's election because we could, we could pause this story and say, well, Jesus' own family didn't believe in him. Wow, unbelievable. God didn't choose Jesus' own family members to trust in him and follow him. Well, we're looking at one chapter of the story, right? we're, it's, which is comforting for us to know that regardless of, of, of those in our life that we look at that don't believe, we are looking at one chapter of the story. We don't see the whole story. We can never write someone off and say, that's it. They're done. They're never going to believe. They're never going to trust in, in, in Jesus. God, God never chose them. We're, this is it. Definitive. It's finished. No. No. Just, I mean, several months later, these very brothers that mock Jesus will believe. They'll become church planters. They'll become leaders within the church. They'll suffer for the name of Jesus. Because this isn't the end of the story. 
We can trust in the sovereignty of God. We can trust in the plan of God, knowing it's ultimately, it's not riding on you. It's up to him. It happens here in this story. And now the, the advice that the brothers give him is, is actually advice we're not all too unfamiliar with. They're essentially going to Jesus and saying, hey, if you're such a good king and a good Messiah, you better go promote yourself. Go to the biggest feast where it's the most popular and show everyone who you are and you'll get real popular real quick. Go promote yourself, Jesus, if you're going to be somebody. We're really familiar with that kind of advice, are we not? If you want to be somebody, you better promote yourself. If you want to have any significance and, and meaning in life, get your name out there. Let everybody see your, your skills and your talents and what you're good at. Put your name on display. Get more followers. It's actually really interesting, the parallels between this very temptation and social media. Hey, Jesus, go promote yourself. Go get more followers. Go grow your influence. Interesting, huh? That's what they're saying to Jesus. It's the same kind of advice that a lot of people give the church. We're planting a church here, right? We're in this together. I've had several people come up to me and say, hey, you want to be, be a big church? You want to really grow? Promote yourself. Get out there. Put your name out there. Let everyone know who you are. Show off all the great things that you're doing so everybody can see how great of a church you are. Then you'll grow. Then you'll be successful. And all, within all of that is this lie that what God considers good and successful is always bigger, better, more popular, more successful. And that's not the truth. That's not the truth of Scripture. We just talked about Jesus ended with a net loss, so I guess he failed. No. We've been ingrained, we've been talking about the last, last couple weeks a little bit, right? We've been ingrained with this idea that to be successful and to be faithful means that we are Bigger, better, more popular, have more money, more possessions, all these things. That's what it means to be truly blessed by God. And if that's the case, then Jesus himself falls outside of that. But that's what they're tempting Jesus with. Jesus, you want to be, be somebody? Go show yourself to the world. And their advice is actually advice Jesus has heard before. In Matthew chapter 4, if you have a Bible, you can turn back there really quickly. Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes to Jesus when he's in the wilderness and he tempts him. And this is what he says in verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's very similar advice Hey, Jesus, you want glory, you want power. That's what this is all about, right? You just want to be big and popular and have all the possessions and everybody just love you and praise you and recognize you. Jesus, go get it. It's yours. And Jesus says, no, I serve the Lord alone. This isn't even my own agenda. I'm submitting to the will of the Father. And Jesus' brothers in this moment are aligning themselves with Satan against Jesus. Hey, Jesus, just go promote yourself. Go show everybody who you are. They're essentially saying to Jesus, go get the crown. Just go get the crown. And now they don't know about the cross that's coming, but they're essentially saying to Jesus, go get the crown. You don't need that cross stuff. Just go get your glory, right? That's what you're here for. Truth is, Jesus did come to show himself to the world, but actually in a very different way. 
But Jesus is rejected by his brothers. And here's what he says to them in verse 6. He says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world can't hate you because you're of the world, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, Jesus has this phrase, my time has not yet come. We've heard him say this before, right? In John chapter 2, before he turned all the water into wine, he told his mother, who was asking him to do something, he said, my time has not yet come. Right? And we talked about this, that when, when the author John tends to write about time or, or the hour being at hand, he's usually referring to Jesus completing his work. Jesus going to the cross saving sinners, being exalted up to the right hand of God after dying and raising from the dead, that usually when John uses that phrase, hour or time, he's referring to that. So the question has to be, what, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says, my time's not come? I can't go to this feast because my time's not here? There's a couple things he, he could be saying. One, he could simply be saying, my time to go up to this feast is not here yet. That's a, a very real possibility because we see he eventually goes. So he might just be saying, my, my time to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast isn't here yet. You go ahead. But for me, I can't go yet. Or he's saying something a little bit more specific. And he's saying something like, my time to reveal myself is not here yet. My time to go up to Jerusalem and reveal myself as the Savior of the world to everyone there, that time's not here yet. He could be saying something like that, that I can't go show myself to the world because the world hates me and it's not time to reveal myself to the world that hates me. Because then it will be time for the cross and God hasn't said it's time yet. So I'm not going. And then he rebukes his brothers and he says, your time's always here. Which is basically, you do whatever you want whenever you want. Any time for you seems right. But for me... I operate differently. Now, Jesus is revealing something to us, regardless of exactly what he means. He's revealing to us. He has some kind of relationship with the creator of time, with God himself. He has some kind of relationship with him that determines what he does and when he does it. And he says to his brothers, you don't. Because you don't follow the Lord. You don't believe in me. You reject me. And he says, the world can't hate you because you're of the world but it hates me because I'm not, I'm not of, this, of this world. I tell the world of its wickedness that it needs a Savior, so it hates me. Jesus' whole life is dependent on God the Father. We see in Galatians chapter 4 that it tells us that at, when the fullness of time came, that's when Jesus was born. There was a, a definitive point that had been picked out by the Lord before the beginning of time to say, this is the moment Jesus will be born. This is the moment that the eternal God will take on human flesh. And we also see that later in Jesus' life, Jesus even says it himself in John chapter 17 as he hangs on the cross, that now is the hour for my death. This is it, the moment you chose. And so we see that the life of Jesus, his birth and his death, are ordained by God to be specific times. But it's not just that. We see all throughout his life, he's very dependent on the Lord to say, I won't do anything unless he tells me to do it. So he hasn't told me it's time to go to the feast, so I'm not going. He hasn't told me it's time to reveal myself, so I'm not going to do so. You guys, meh, anytime seems right to you, right? It's always the right time because you just operate based off whatever you feel is best. 
Let me ask you this. How do you make your decisions? How do you make your choices? Where to live? What to do for work? Who you seek time with? How you spend your money? How do you make those decisions? Is it just, this seems nice. This one pays more. Houses are way cheaper here. Way more people agree with my political views in this part, so I'll go here. Eh, I want to hang out with this person. I want to make sure I have enough money to, to spend on this, so I'm not going to spend it here. How do you make those decisions? Have you ever sought to ask the Lord what he has for you in those? Hey God, how much do you want me to give? Or is it just, ah, this is what I decided, this is what feels right. No, God, how much do you want me to give? God, who, who do you want me to seek time with this week? Is there something you have for me, Lord, that I'm just not seeing? How do you want me to spend my vacation, my summer? How do you want me to use my tax return? Do you ever ask the Lord any of those questions? Or is it, are you just like the brothers? Just you, for you, any, th- any time seems right. Anything seems right. Whatever just feels good and feels right, that's surely what it must be. And that's how you make your decisions. For Jesus, he said, I, ha- I have a relationship with the Father. He tells me where to go and what to do and when. And that wasn't just because Jesus was God. It was also because Jesus sought to be dependent on the Father. Now, I'm not, what I'm not saying is, hey, go throughout your life and don't you dare ever make a decision unless you pause and pray and get an answer. That's not what I'm saying. Because the Bible's really clear about a bunch of stuff that we don't have to stop and pray about. For example, if you get really angry at someone that's wronged you, you don't need to stop and pray, hey, God, should I seek revenge on them? No, like the Lord's already told you about forgiveness, right? There's plenty of things that the Bible's clear on and spoken on that you don't need to stop and evaluate. Is this the Lord's will? We know it. But there's plenty of things that we just think, ah, this feels right, I'll do it. Now, the Spirit of God's also given His people wisdom. He leads you, He goes with you, He speaks to you. But do we ever stop? To say, God, what do you have for me? Is this the right timing? I fear that there's a lot of those claiming the name of Jesus that just kind of sit in the driver's seat and decide to just turn the wheel wherever and whenever we feel like it. Those that don't belong to the Lord are like the brothers. Whatever, whenever. But those that do belong to the Lord called to seek His voice, and He's often going to call us to things that might be hard. And maybe that's why we don't do it, because if we're honest, we're not really willing to follow whatever He might say. So we don't ask, because that's easier.
When Jesus says, my time, he might even be saying something a little bit deeper that's connected to these feasts we talked about. Because Jesus is the true fulfillment of all of these feasts. All of them are ultimately meant to point us to Jesus, the true and better fulfillment of these feasts. Right? The Passover feast. Jesus is crucified on Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is crucified on Passover. That is not an accident. It's the timing of God to communicate to all of us, this is the true Lamb of God whose blood provides covering for you from the wrath coming for your sins. That's what Passover is about. It's about Jesus. He's the true fulfillment of it. It points us to the cross. Pentecost, the the Feast of, of Weeks, it's about a harvest feast that comes when Jesus sends His Spirit to begin the harvest time for the church. After Jesus ascends back to heaven in Acts chapter 2, he sends his Holy Spirit on Pentecost to say, it's time for the harvest to start coming in. It's time for people to start believing in the name of Jesus, and I'm sending you my Spirit to help you gather the harvest. That's Pentecost. And this feast, the Feast of Booths, is meant to point us towards the second coming of Jesus where Jesus comes to dwell with his people fully and forever. Right? That was the idea of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, that, that God makes his dwelling with man. So this, this feast is meant to point us to the second coming of Jesus when Jesus would come in glory and in celebration to say, hey, the harvest is in. It's time to bring it all in and rejoice and celebrate and be together forever. That's when Jesus returns and brings his church home, and gives us a new heaven and a new earth, and guess what? We celebrate forever, but it's not going to be in booths. It's going to be with Jesus. All of these feasts are fulfilled in Christ. And so what Jesus might be saying is something so much deeper. He might be saying this, it's not time for me to go to this second coming feast. It's not time for me to end the harvest and bring everybody in because no one believes. I need to do some work first. I first need to go to this Passover feast because I need to be the lamb who's slain. I first need to go there. And then I need to send my spirit so that the harvest can start to come in. And eventually... I'm going to come to this feast. I'm going to come back and I'm going to return and I'm going to bring all of my people home. Jesus might be saying, I can't come to this feast because it's not time for the crown. It's time for the cross. I'm not here to get all the glory. I'm here to get my people saved. So when Jesus' brothers push him to reveal himself at this feast, I think Jesus says, no, it's not time. It's not time for me to go get glory. It's time for me to suffer in the place of sinners. Jesus, go show yourself to the world. Go get your glory. But Jesus knew, I have to go show myself to the world, but in a very different way. On the cross. So he says in John chapter 12, later on, look at this, look at what Jesus says. 
John chapter 12 and verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, because the cross is coming. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And then he prays and says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus, his, you know, his brothers were right about something, that Jesus came to show himself to the world. They were right about that. But it was going to be a very different way. It was going to be through him being lifted up on a cross that he would draw all men to himself. To say, this is the Savior of the world. This is what you need to cover your sins. This is what you need to be made right with God, to have peace with God. You need a Savior being lifted up on a cross for your sins in your place. And as he's lifted on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. He will draw those that are his to himself to see him and believe. So yes, he came to show himself, but in a totally different way than his brothers thought. It wasn't through miracles. It wasn't through massive glory. It wasn't through sitting on a throne. It was by being hung on a cross in the place of sinners. And so he says, I must do that first before I go to this feast and celebrate this feast. We're so much more like the brothers than we want to admit. We reject Jesus. We trust ourselves. We align with the mission of Satan. But nothing is going to stop Jesus from going to the cross. That's what we see here so clearly. Nothing will stop it. Jesus wants to reveal himself to the world. He wants the glory that belongs to him, and he's going to eventually bring it, but nothing is going to stop him from first going to the cross. And so Jesus willingly suffers the rejection of his own brothers because he knows he has the approval of his Father. And for us, he willingly loses the approval of the Father by being put in the place of sin on the cross so that we can have the approval of God the Father. Jesus willingly walks towards suffering, not just the rejection of his brothers, but ultimately the rejection of his own Father on the cross so that you and me could be accepted. Jesus came to save his enemies. And then we're told Jesus goes to the feast, which we're like, wait a minute, did Jesus lie? <laughs> no, no, he didn't lie. It was time. It was time for him to go to the feast. So he goes, not publicly though, not to celebrate the feast. He goes privately. And we're going to see the rest of this chapter. We're going to see what he does. But it tells us this, he goes up and as he's going, everyone's looking for him. The Jews are looking for him. Where is that man? And then they're in disagreement. Some of them say he's good. He's a good man. Some of them say he stirs the people up. They're in disagreement about Jesus. He's leading people astray. And then it tells us, but for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. No one was willing to suffer by being associated with Jesus. No one. Yet Jesus 
is choosing suffering to save sinners. We're meant to see this contrast between sinners and the Savior. Humanity, no one wants to be, no one wants to risk suffering by associating themselves with Jesus, and yet Jesus came to choose suffering to save those very people. This is the Savior we have. And when we come to trust in Him and know Him, He gives us the approval of God. We we now become children of God, saints, holy, declared righteous, loved by him, given all this stuff that can never be taken from us. So now we become people who are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. We actually become like him. We become willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. We become willing to suffer so that others might be saved. He makes us like that. He changes us to where we can agree with what Philippians 3 says. And we'll close with this. Philippians 3 says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I am willing to suffer the loss of everything. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or my own abilities to follow God, no, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus takes the very people that are mocking him, that are afraid to associate themselves with him, and turns them into people that say, I will willingly walk towards suffering for the name of Jesus. Because what I have is of infinitely more value than the comfort of this world. I have the worth of knowing Christ as my Lord. So I will willingly suffer for following him. I will willingly suffer to help others see him as he is. Which helps us endure. Helps us keep going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we read this story, we even think about these feasts and we talk about your timing. I am just, I'm blown away at your sovereignty. That God, from before time existed, you planned all this stuff out so that it comes together so beautifully and purposefully that you just, you're not just flying by the seat of your pants. You're, you're planning all these things out, not just because you like to plan, but because you want to communicate to us. You want to show us that you're intentional. You want to show us that you love us. You want to show us that you came to be our Savior. And so, Father, we confess this morning our tendency to to reject you, to not be willing to suffer by by being associated with you, for, for thinking that following you is just about glory and popularity and success that following you just means we get all this great stuff and we get the crown 
God, would you help us remember that the cross comes before the crown? That in this world, we will suffer. In this world, we will be hated. And it's in those moments where we will know it's because we belong to you. And so, Lord, would you help us know the surpassing worth of having you as our Savior? Would you give us endurance? Would you help us be patient and faithful? Would you help us be willing to suffer for the sake of others? Only you can stir that in us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.